Morning. You know, there are lots and lots and lots of things in the Bible I don't understand, and this week I discovered most of them are in Daniel. Um, so uh, I sent out a, um, an email with a, a, a video clip on it that explained Daniel. Could you just put your hand up if you, if you watch that? Okay, some of you, good. Um, if, you, if you didn't watch it, pick up your email and, uh, and watch it. It's from a thing called the Bible Project that we've been referring to through the year. Um, it's an excellent resource, and the, I think it's eight and a half minutes about Daniel, and it's, uh, it helps explain a lot about the kind of structure and content, and I'm not going to talk about any of that at all. So um, it was brilliant for me because it just did half of, of what I was trying to do, uh, more than half. Um, so my job is to try and unpack a little bit of, of Daniel to you and to try and pick out how understanding Daniel helps us to understand God more. I mean, this whole series is looking at uh, God's big picture. The uh, whole series is looking at what Scripture does in unpacking this for us, in helping us to appreciate and understand what we're reading and, and how every bit of, of what we can unpack in Scripture is useful for us, is helpful, uh, which is 2 Timothy 3.16, I believe. All Scripture's God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and building up and all those kind of things. So um, we're going to look at Daniel because he's another one of these sort of signpost figures, really. Um, who's ever read the book of Daniel? Who's understood it all? Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's, if, you, if you haven't read it, go back and, and try and have, have a look at it. It's, it's basically it's split into two bits, as the, the video says. And the, the first bit is all nice stories. You know, it's brilliant. You can understand it. Think, oh, yeah, this makes sense, sort of. And then the next six chapters is really it's a series of prophetic words that Daniel brings um, which have a lot of uh, symbolism in them. And, uh, you know, if anybody tells you, yes, Daniel definitely means this, then um, they're wrong. Because, yes, it probably does mean that, but it means a lot of other stuff as well. Anyway, we're not going to look at that too much. We're going to try and look at Daniel. And if uh, I've done everything correctly, the slide should move on. Yeah, look at that. So um, save your applause. It's all right. I didn't notice anybody trying, so I thought I'd just let you off the hook there. This is the, uh, um, the reference for the, the Daniel thing. If you've not got that, uh, we'll put that up later so you can have a look. Um, let's have a read of, of some of it. I've got two sections I want to read out. First from uh, Daniel chapter 1. Um, sorry, I can't give you the page number. Yes, I can. Seven, page 710, if that's helpful. Uh, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. You notice that? God gave some pagan guy victory over his own people. See, God had been saying to his own people for a long, long time, watch out, guys. Be faithful or things won't go well for you because you are a puny, titchy nation and you've got some big, scary people around you and the only way that you're going to be protected is by staying close to me. Uh, they decided not to do that uh, despite prophets coming again and again and again. And so uh, basically, 
they got stuffed. Um, and the king permitted Nebuchadnezzar to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and he placed them in the treasure house of his God. So everything that was precious about worshipping God, the king just said, here you are, Neb. And uh, Neb carried them off and put them in his own temple, um, basically to show my God is bigger than your God. That's what it's about. Um, Then the king ordered uh, Aspenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Uh, So those who were uh, weedy and uh, looked like the back end of a bus, uh, or were not men, um, they didn't didn't get picked. And you might think, that's a bit unfair. Let me just point out, it's quite likely, because Daniel went into the... uh, Um, the king's palace and the king had a vested interest in stopping Israelites from um, let's say making small people with the women in the palace and so the king took steps to ensure that that didn't happen so if you're thinking oh it's not very fair that Daniel got picked he had to pay a price literally uh, to be there Um, select them, uh, make sure they are well versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and suited to serve in the royal palace. So these guys were sent to university. They were sent to the University of Babylon. They'd been living and growing up in Judah and they were uh, indoctrinated with uh, everything the Babylonians believed about, all their gods and their myths and and their astrology and everything else. Uh, Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then he would enter uh, the royal service. Okay, I'm just going to skip on to uh, chapter 10. So now we're, that's right at the start of Daniel's life. He's a teenager then. Um, uh, moving on to chapter 10, which is right toward the end of his life when he's probably around 80. Uh, In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus, why do we know he was a lot older? Because if you look at the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, I've got some dates later you can have a look at, and the third year of Cyrus's reign, there's a long time between them. Uh, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, had another vision. He understood that the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future times of war and great hardship. Uh, This is chapter 10, I'm in verse 2 now. When this vision came to me, So Daniel's now speaking. It's in the kind of first person. When this vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I'd eaten no rich food, no meat, no wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. On April 3rd, uh, sorry, 23rd, um, as I was standing on the bank of the Great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen, uh, wearing a belt of pure gold around his waist, His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, uh, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So there was something going on when Daniel saw this vision Uh, which terrified everybody else. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. 
Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted, and I lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling, to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this, I stood up, still trembling. Okay, I've just got to move a bit so I can see what's going on there. Now, before we look at Daniel, um, we're going to have a quick look at Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, received messages from God saying to the rest of his people, um, shape up, guys, get your act together. Uh, by the way, um, in order not to copy everything down, um, the... the uh, PowerPoint will be available and will be sent out. Uh, Liz has already got it, so uh, um, don't uh, bust a gut trying to do it. Um, So the message that Jeremiah received was, uh, shape up, Israel, because if you don't, um, I'm going to have to do something so drastic in order to bring your hearts back to me that you will feel as though it is just the worst thing that could happen. Um, and he prophesied this, and in Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12, he says this, The entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of Babylonians a wasteland forever. So your country is going to be a wasteland forever, or your, for, for 70 years, sorry, not forever, Uh, And then, when you get back, I'm going to make Babylon a wasteland forever. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Babylon. I haven't. But if you look at Babylon now, you know, I mean, it's it's not great. You know, it's not great. Saddam uh, Hussein had his uh, palace there, and uh, that didn't come off too well recently. So, um, the uh, the area is not a, a kind of picturesque area. But when this prophecy was given. And it's, it's difficult with the Old Testament to, to be exact about these. But when this prophecy was given was around the same time that Daniel... Uh, it was maybe just a few years before Daniel was taken off to Babylon. So there was something key here about Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years and Daniel being carted off to Babylon. Keep that in mind. Put a, a kind of a bookmark in it in your mind and uh, we'll come back to it later on. Okay, here's Daniel in context. Uh, he was born probably around 617 BC. Just um, bless you. Uh, just in case you get confused, remember that before Christ, um, the, the bigger the number, the longer ago it was. And then as the numbers get smaller, it gets nearer to where Jesus was born, and then they start to get bigger again. It confused me, so I thought there's bound to be at least one other person that gets confused. So... He was born somewhere around 617, they think. Um, He was taken to Babylon probably in 605 BC. Now, the reason that they can date that a bit more carefully is because King Nebuchadnezzar, is that what it says up there? Yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pretty well-known king historically, they can date when he um, took power uh, fairly accurately using um, all sorts of clever stuff that historians and archaeologists do. Um, and one of the things, what they used to do when, when he came to um, 
a king like that came to power is he'd go and take over the, the other places. And that's why they always, particularly through this period of the, uh, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, all the rulers were referred to as king of kings. They were all called king of kings because you had kings and then you had the king of kings. So uh, this guy didn't mind there being smaller kings as long as they knew that he was the real king. He was the king of kings. Interesting that, isn't it? Because the title comes somewhere else, so I believe. And um, so they think they can date that reasonably well. And then you get this period where Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. Um, Now, you have to bear in mind that, uh, firstly, this was a long time ago. Secondly, histories that were written were not meant to be accurate historical accounts. Most of the histories that were written were simply written to big up the king. If you wanted to be a successful historian, you made a lot of who was in charge. And you didn't worry too much about the details. Um, you just you know, put the, 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 the rough uh, idea in. And of course, they didn't have BC uh, for obvious reasons. So the dates aren't too accurate either. It, you know, it could be the year of the leek or the year of the, the moldy cabbage or something else. I don't know. But um, So you, you've got to be a bit flexible with, with some of these dates. Um, then you get a guy called Belshazzar, who's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the co-regent of Babylon with his father, uh, Nabonidus. Okay, word of warning here, just because it says he's his grandson doesn't mean he was actually his grandson. Okay, um, it doesn't actually mean the other guy was his son. They used to adopt people, if they had a rubbish family, they'd go and find somebody better and they'd say, oh, I don't like my son. I'd rather have him as my son. I'll go and have him. Um, Which uh, might, in some cases, sound quite convenient. I don't know. Um, All the dads are just putting their arms around their son saying, don't worry, son, I didn't do that to you. (laughs) Thought about it, but didn't do it. Um, And the reason I'm going through all this is that when you read the account of of Daniel, if you're trying to match up what's happening with the kings and you just read what's there in most uh, translations, it can get a bit confusing. So um, I spent a while trying to sort this out. Um, You then get uh, Darius or Darius, who was the governor of Babylon under Cyrus. So the Babylonians have gone now. The Medes and the Persians, they're the guys that have taken over. And uh, Darius was a governor under Cyrus. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar used to be the king of kings. Now Cyrus is the king of kings. Um, I wonder why they didn't go further and say he's the king of the king of kings. But that would have just got too confusing. So uh, we now get Darius in charge. He comes in when the the handwriting comes on the wall, um, in case you're wondering. And then you get this guy Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is the... Uh, the, the king of kings in, uh, amongst the Medes and the Persians. And he is the guy who says to the Israelites, you can go back. Now, the point at which he said that, and they got ready to go back, as far as they can tell historically, and I tried looking at a number of records just so it wasn't somebody super keen um, working out of it, it looks like 70 years. And also, as far as we can tell, and as far as the the account is, uh, is reliable, Daniel was still alive. And what Daniel had been doing um, for a little while previously, and the bit that I just read from chapter 10 is part of this period, Daniel had been praying, I want my people to return. 
he'd come across Jeremiah's prophecy and he'd taken that prophecy back to God he didn't start running around and telling the king hey look it says it here he realized that wasn't the answer he needed to know he needed to go to God and find out from God is this true and and if this is true then we must have really messed up so a lot of the prayer later on in Daniel is Daniel repenting on behalf of his whole people he doesn't go and tell all the other people to repent because there's a lot of Jews living in Babylon at this time there's 70 years they've been there so they've they've bred successfully uh, bred a dreadful term sorry had families and children I do apologize but that's basically what they did wasn't it yeah (laughs) you know there was no birth control so a lot of them you know so um and uh, they'd been successful they'd become business people and so on so they were doing well in in Babylon and uh and Daniel was saying, no, we've got to repent. We need to go back. Now, what is it that took Daniel from being a capable teenager who was carted off to a different land and ends up being perhaps the only person on the face of the earth that God could entrust with the task of praying into being this prophetic word that Jeremiah had had 70 years ago so that all of his people could return. This is a really, really significant moment for the Jewish people. It's a very significant moment for us in our history, which is why we have it uh, outlined for us in the Old Testament. So there's a process that Daniel went through. um, And he had to learn two things. He had to learn intimacy, and he had to learn courage. God teaches us things often by testing us. The things that we say, oh, why has this happened? This is so awful. Oh, please pray for me, brothers and sisters, because this has happened and that has happened. And God's saying, oh, hello, it's a test. Hello, it's a test. I've already established the victory. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to be afraid. Just trust me. But of course, we, you know, we're not so good at that. That's why we need testing. Um, there's a couple of proverbs that talk about the way they used to, um, uh, to refine, and still do, refine gold and silver. And it talks about, um, I think it's the, uh, the furnace for silver, the crucible for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And our testing sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? just feels that kind of intense and some of you probably read this but when they refine silver they keep reheating it and keep reheating it and keep reheating it and it's the silversmith knows it's ready when he can see his face reflected in it and all the impurities have gone god knows when we're ready when he can see his face reflected in us when the impurities have gone daniel had some tests to go through to get rid of these uh, the impurities in his life uh, the first one was very early on he arrived in uh, the palace, it, you know, life had not been uh, kind to Daniel very recently. They'd been carted off um, across the, the desert. Um, they'd have been made to walk. The Assyrians, I'm not sure the Babylonians did this, but the Assyrians, they used to uh, get a fish hook and they would literally stick it up inside the nose of the, the people that they were, were moving away. So you couldn't really go anywhere without your nose. Um, a bit unpleasant, really. And I don't know if the Babylonians did the same, but they weren't noted for their kindness. So um, he'd been through this whole process, suddenly found himself in the, the palace, and everything was good again, and they'd got this incredible kind of food before them. Um, 
But what Daniel realizes is that uh, if he eats this food, it will cause him to be defiled in front of God. And he also realizes that um, it's just, you know, he'll get fat and bloated and, and, and it's just, he won't be kind of sharp. And so he says to the guy, hey, we don't need this. Can you just give us a break on this food? And the man says, no, I will lose my head. If the king doesn't see you thriving, that's it. I'm a goner. So Daniel said, all right, give us 10 days of this diet and see how we're doing. So they did 10 days of that diet, and they were were doing well. Um, That was the first test. What happened after that test is really interesting. Again, you go back, read the book, and it says... After the test, God gave them gifts. It was only after that test that Daniel was given the ability to interpret dreams. God tested his heart. He said, I wonder what Daniel's going to be like. I wonder if he's going to follow me wherever he is and whatever his circumstances. So I'm just going to give him a test. I'm just going to give him the opportunity to show that. Tests really are opportunities to prove God's faithfulness. Tests are opportunities to prove the strength of the word of God that we're trusting in. The great thing about God is, you know, if for some reason something doesn't work out in our test, then he, he'll test us again because he's committed to us improving and growing and developing. So what happened to Daniel was he was then given this gift um, after he'd been through the, the test. He's still a young guy, probably late teens, and... Then, within a very short time, uh, King Neb has a dream, and that's the next test. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole story. It will take too long. If you don't know it, read of it. Basically, it's a dream of this incredible uh, vision of a statue. And, um, and it's God revealing to Nebuchadnezzar things that are going to happen in history. Interesting, again, remember Nebuchadnezzar is not somebody who honors God and worships God. But he is, <coughs> excuse me, God's chosen instrument. So Daniel comes along and interprets the dream because he's been given the gift. When God gives us something, he's then going to give us an opportunity to use it, isn't he? Yes, Graham, he is. So if we don't use it, then we're not using what it is that God has given us. We're not making the most of what God is releasing into our lives and onto the earth through the opportunities that we are tested in. Okay, so that's the second test. Uh, so, uh, four kingdoms and a funeral. I was working hard with these, and you know, I'm not getting much feedback from you, so... You know, if you're not going to laugh, at least throw money or something. Um, We then, a little bit later on, and it's not clear when this is. This might have been very soon after, or it might have been 20 to 30 years. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and Daniel is called in to interpret it. And uh, it's not good news. Nebuchadnezzar is the the person who holds Daniel's life um, in his hands. Literally, even though Daniel's incredibly important in the kingdom at this stage, Nebuchadnezzar is still holding his life. It's in the balance all the time. And the outcome of this this dream is not good. Basically, he says to King Neb, "Um, you're going to 
be a madman for seven years. Um, <laughs> good news, hey? And, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar obviously didn't believe that and, and went on in the way he was and he was just wandering around looking at everything he'd built and the hanging gardens and all that kind of thing and saying, look, how great am I? And uh, madness struck him for seven years. And then he was restored to his right mind. And there's this passage in the Old Testament, which is the most incredible passage written by a pagan king anywhere, which basically saying, God, he's number one. He's, he's the one that rescued me. Uh, all the other gods, they're just chaff compared to this God. Worship him and him only. Uh, it didn't, doesn't seem to have really made a big difference to him, but it's, it's still an incredible passage. Incidentally, um, when you go searching on the internet for stuff about Daniel, you'll find some, some stuff that says uh, Daniel's all myths and legends and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, if you, if you don't have an understanding of where God fits into the whole picture, you can come to no other conclusion. There's no other conclusion. It's only when you understand where God is in this and how what happens in Daniel fits into the rest of the Bible that it starts to make any sense. Uh, that's, that's knowledge that we acquire in a slightly different way. Uh, it's still knowledge, but it's knowledge that's acquired in a slightly different way. Um, we then move on. Um, the writings on the wall. Spectre of things to come. Get that? I, I like that. I thought that was good. Thank you very much. Yeah. For those that don't know, I'm not going to explain now. Just watch James Bond. Um, but so Nebuchadnezzar's gone. And um, uh, Belshazzar comes along. And uh, no, I think it's Darius. We're into Darius now. Uh, it's Darius. And there's... Uh, no, it is Belshazzar because... That's right, it's Belshazzar. And uh, there's, there's a, a hand that writes on the wall. Um, and it says some very... Um, searching things. It basically says, you, Darius, uh, you're a lightweight. Uh, sorry, you're um, Belshazzar. Uh, you're a lightweight. Uh, you've been weighed and found wanting, and um, you're out. Uh, and basically, according to the story, that's what happened that night. I mean, that's, you know, that's like Amazon Prime delivery of God, isn't it? That's just, that night, he turns up, and psh, he's gone, and the, the Medes and the, the Persians come in, and the story changes a bit. Um, but Daniel's an older guy now. So just try and think about, about Daniel. This will be more difficult for you if you are kind of under 50. But as you get over 50, and you realize that, you know, sometimes things take longer than you anticipate because God is building something in you. And you don't even see what it is most of the time until something comes up and you're asked to respond to it and you know that you're responding differently because of what God's done in you. And the reason that takes a long time is because um, we're a bit slow sometimes and uh, we don't always respond terribly well. It doesn't have to take as long, but in my case, I notice that it usually does take a long time. Um, and so uh, we have this, this test. And meanwhile, around this test... Daniel starts to get these prophecies that relate to things that happen at the end times. Um, both the end times for Daniel and this kingdom, but also the, the end times for, um, for us, for, for the people of God generally. And it's probably the case that these prophecies that Daniel receives apply to at least three different periods of time. 
prophecy is a bit like this, particularly this type of prophecy. Um, there are different types, but this, this type of stuff, it's often got a, a, a kind of immediate application, and then it's got a kind of medium-term application, and then it's got a long-term application. So a lot of the stuff that Jesus has to say, particularly about Jerusalem and the end times, and the disciples are saying, hey, when, when's all this going to happen? And he says things, and you can say, oh, yeah, that was to do with that historical incident then, but there's still stuff that doesn't quite make sense, and, and you say, well, maybe we, we haven't had that yet. The same is true here. Um, and the last, and perhaps the most famous, is um, Daniel getting thrown into the, uh, the lion's den. There are lots and lots of uh, lovely pictures of this, and it all looks very lovely. Daniel looks really clean. The lions look clean. They've got a nice paved floor. Uh, the lions are almost smiling. They're kind of sitting down, and, and you know, and Daniel's stroking them or something like this, or he's sort of playing catch with them. I don't know how it works. But uh, I think it was probably fairly scary. But the thing is, uh, Daniel was not scared. I have to say, I wanted to include a song at this point, which is, I think, the greatest Christian song ever written. And it's from the Beginner's Bible, and you can find it online, and it's called Daniel Be Cool. Um, and uh, just if, for my sake, if not for yours, go and check it out, because it's so much fun. And uh, how, how often have we listened to that song in our family? I mean, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And so... Uh, we, could, uh, we could stand up here and sing it, but we're not going to. Okay. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, no matter how much money you throw. But you could try. So. so in all of this time, Daniel is learning something. He's learning intimacy, but he's learning courage as well. And we're going to see how the two go together. God refines and... Tr- uh, he refines and transforms Daniel's character over decades. Now, you might have thought, hey, Daniel was doing pretty well. But look at the way Daniel reacts to the appearance before him in chapter 10. Um, and the way he responds to that and what he had done to prepare himself for that. We don't know why God waited 60, 70 years, except that two things were happening at least. One, the prophecy of Jeremiah was running its time. The, one of the reasons that the Israelites, uh, or people speculate that the Israelites were out for 70 years is because um, they'd been in uh, what was to them the promised land for 490 years. And every seven years they were supposed to let the land lie fallow in order to prove that they were trusting God to show that you know, we don't need to do as much work in this year because God will look after us. It seems as though they never did that once. So the land needed 70 years to rest. 70 years, not for the land to recuperate and do all those ecological things that are probably important, but 70 years to show God's faithfulness. The whole business about this, the seven-year Sabbath was to show God's faithfulness to the Israelites. And because they never trusted God's faithfulness, God said, um, instead of trusting me once every seven years, you're now going to have to trust me over 70 years. So that's going on. And at the same time, Daniel is spending his, most of his life, certainly his whole adult life, in Babylon, um, whilst this prophecy is working its way through. And God is preparing him and his heart in order to receive these visions 
later in his life so that he could pray them back to God. And so that he could, he could do that transaction with God that needed to work out. That's, uh, Daniel is trusted to carry God's message to rulers and kings. But this is not God's final purpose. So you think Daniel's, Daniel's done pretty well. He's spoken to, to Nebuchadnezzar. He's brought these incredible dream interpretations to him. He, he's understood the writing on the wall. He had withstood the challenge of, will I pray to anybody but King Cyrus? And he'd been in the, um, the, the lion's den overnight. He'd done all that. But God had more in mind for him. Daniel becomes the person who is available and trusted to intercede for God's whole people to be returned and restored to Jerusalem. Another interesting thing, which I won't go into too much. If you read the the prophecies again, you'll see how much is not about God's people. It's about Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem is always a symbol of worship, because it's the place of worship, of sacrifice, because it was the only place where sacrifices could be offered, and therefore of relationship with God and restoration with God and therefore intimacy with God. Under the new covenant, we've come into that permanently. Daniel's life spans the period of exile as the first returning Jews went back in 638 BC. Uh, And that's in the beginning of Ezra, uh, when Zerubbabel leads the first group of of Jews back. Um, So what does Daniel pray for? Uh, I think I've just said all this. Daniel 9.20, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. The prayer was, let Jerusalem be restored. Very interesting Again, it's just a whole subject in itself, but the attachment to a place. The attachment to a place. It's not just a people, it's a place. It's an inhabitation. It's a location. It's ground that was given that they needed to go back to. Hang on to that thought. Jerusalem is a place of worship, sacrifice, forgiveness, and the fulfillment of God's promise. Jerusalem is a place of God's promise. It's a place of intimacy, but to live in it takes courage. The things that we see in Daniel, we see also in Jesus. His heart, both of their hearts, were tested and strengthened so that they, he, Jesus, as well as Daniel, could fulfill the calling of the Father on his life. In doing some bold things, he was really being prepared for doing the boldest thing that he was called to. Ultimately, Jesus was called to provide atonement. The stuff that he went through was part of the the testing. Read the Gospels again. Jesus grew in stature. He grew in favor. Through loud cries, he learned obedience. Go back and read it and say, why did the Son of God have to learn obedience? He had to learn obedience because God was taking him in the form of a man, in the the perfect union of God and man. He was taking this man to perform a task that only God could perform. 
And so he needed the, the interaction between the, the God and the man to be perfect. That same thing happens. So that, uh, John 11, uh, 41 42, and Luke 23, uh, 34 to 36. You see, at his weakest points, Jesus Christ's Father. That's what it boils down to, was the relationship that Jesus had with his Father. The first one, uh, John eleven forty one 41 uh, to 2, is when he's on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. When he raised Lazarus uh, from the dead, uh, Lazarus was dead. <laughs> and um, Jesus was upset. Uh, but he, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Ever had that? Sometimes you just know something's going to happen. You know something's going to happen. Jesus knew that Lazarus was, was going to be okay. But uh, he said, Father, thank you that you've heard me. He goes to the Father at his weakest points. The same is true for us. The Father is refining our lives and strengthening our characters so that we can fulfill his calling on us. James chapter 1, 2 to 4 talks about when we go through many trials, consider it joy because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And 1 Peter 7, and there there are lots. Just note them down and go back to them. And to do that, we need both intimacy and courage. I've used those words a lot, so I want to, in the last couple of minutes, focus on those. We need intimacy in knowing him. And I wasn't here last week, but I think Paul also talked about that, talked about passion, intimacy. And that's something that we, we have highlighted often. But we also need courage in following him. If we have intimacy without courage, we'll get nowhere. Um, I'll go on a couple. Read the bottom one, don't read the middle one. Intimacy without courage is just sentimentality. Courage without intimacy is just bravado. We can be as intimate as we want, but if it doesn't lead to courage, it's empty. Because if you read the one above, it says intimacy reveals identity. We've talked a lot about that. You want to know your identity, go to go to God. But courage reveals calling. I don't just want identity. I want to know my calling. Jesus knew he was God's son, but he had to learn his calling. He had to have the courage to go to the cross. He had to have the courage to go through the process that was going on. Father, if there's any other way. Okay, and that's not just courage in, in your kind of physical body. That's courage in your heart. Courage, something to do with Latin and French, I believe. Heart. Okay? Got a couple of linguists here, so I'm just showing off here. All right? It's to do with the heart. What does courage look like? You see, we've seen, we've seen uh, Daniel, we've seen courageous acts, we've seen big, big picture things, we've seen blockbuster Hollywood things. If Daniel was in the Oscars, he would get everything. Best animal trainer, best costumes, best food, probably best music, best actor, all of that kind of stuff. 
And courage is that sometimes. But sometimes, courage is just getting up in the morning. Courage is just having enough to face the day. Some of you know what that's like. You lie in bed in the morning and you just say, Can I do it again today, Father? Can I do it again today? And you won't find the courage to do that unless you've got the intimacy of relationship to go to the Father. Because the place you find courage is in intimacy. Intimacy is a hug like this. God often doesn't speak to us in those times. He doesn't need to. He just embraces us. And in that embrace, we find courage. Courage over a long period of time looks like perseverance. I can have courage today. The question is, will I have courage tomorrow? Will I have courage next week? Will I have courage next year? If I have, we call that perseverance, but it is courage. And how do I find that? By intimacy. If your vision is for intimacy, wonderful, but don't stop there. Have a vision that leads you to courage. Sometimes courage is as simple as getting through the worship times. Um, you wouldn't have noticed this, or probably most of you wouldn't have noticed this. Some of us might. Um, when you're bereaved of somebody very close to you, there are certain things that happen in your spirit that are triggered by certain songs. I've got several of them, and we sang them all this morning. You know, I was just getting fed up. <laughs> when the third one came up, which was... Uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember what it was now. When the third one came, what was it? Um, another song about... It was basically everybody being happy. When I run my race, oh, God, I'm going to be so happy. I'm just going to run like this toward you. And I think, yeah, well, okay. But it's touching something that's, that's still raw. So <laughs> courage is saying, yeah, I'm going to sing this. I'm, going, I'm just going to sing it. I'm going to worship in it. And we sang the, the last one. With the, that last one we did, um, I'm actually going to ask you to come up. And we're going to do that again. Because it doesn't mention anything about um, people dying. <laughs> But it is, it is about, I just want to be near you. Intimacy means time. Yeah, you can come back up now. Intimacy means time, tears, and tenderness. Courage means trust, toughness, and tenacity. In the, the bit of Daniel I read at the beginning, uh, there's a, a phrase I came across which um, I really like. It's in chapter 10, verse 11. This is the... Uh, this is the angel speaking to, to Daniel. And he's speaking from God and he says, Daniel, you are very precious to God. I mean, that's good news, isn't it? We all need to know we're precious. I need to know that. I need to know I'm precious to him. I mean, I've got people that think I'm, I'm precious. I know I have. I've got my family and, and they love me. But I need to know that I'm precious to God. You're very precious to God 
So listen carefully. Oh, that's interesting. I'm so precious to God, he wants to say something to me. What does that mean? If God wants to say something to me, maybe he's going to give me some instruction to to serve him with. Maybe I'm so precious and he trusts me so much because of the way that we've walked over, I don't know, more than 50 years. Then he wants to say something to me. So stand up, for I've been sent to you. Daniel was on the floor. He was terrified by what he saw. The angel lifted him to his hands and knees, but he said to Daniel, Daniel, you are precious to God, so listen carefully and stand up. Stand up. Find the courage to stand. The whole armour of God passage, at the end it says, and when you've done all this, stand. It's all we have to do sometimes, just to stand. So we're going to sing, and these guys are going to lead us. And um, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm just going to say, uh, I'd like you to respond to God. Just respond in whatever way you feel. What I don't want is you thinking, oh, I've got to stand, otherwise everybody will think I'm just not responding to God. Okay? It's not like that. You're free to sit down. I'm not going to stand. Okay? Otherwise I'll fall over. But um, well, I might stand up and hang on to something. I don't know. But um, I want you to stand, not automatically. I want to stand when you're ready. You see, you're precious to God. So listen. God has a message for every single one of us. Every single one. And every single one of us needs to hear something unique. That's the amazing thing about him. It's just so brilliant. See, I don't have to do what you've got to do. I'm so pleased. And you don't have to do what I'm called to do. You should be pleased. But also, I want nothing more than for everybody to be able to Walk in what God has prepared. That, you know, all the time I was, was teaching, that desire was there, and that desire is still there. I just want people to walk in what, what God's got for them. So listen and stand up. But stand up when you're ready. Okay, uh, so can we sing it through once? Um, then I'll pray at the end and then we'll, we'll finish. <laughs>